Hey folks, Emmanuel here. We're hard at work on a new episode for you that will be out next week. But in the meantime, I just wanted to drop in and tell you about a new show that some of my colleagues at Gimlet have been working on. It's called Stuck with Damon Young. Uh, if Damon's name sounds familiar to you, he's an award-winning writer and author who I really love because he is just so brutally honest and funny about race, religion, and so many other things. And he brings a lot of that to this new show. Uh, he has all these conversations with a lot of really smart people about issues that are often really difficult to pass. The show comes out every Tuesday, and you can find it on Spotify. We're going to feature an episode of the show on our feed this week. It's about what being on the internet, especially if you're a public figure, does to your sense of self. Specifically about what it's like to be a black public figure on the internet. In his episode, Damon explores the weight of being a member of so-called blue check black Twitter with Jamel Hill. And then he talks to one very online couple, Joel Anderson and Janae Desmond-Harris, about the politics of defending yourself and the ones you love online. I hope you enjoy it. We'll be back with that episode right after the break. Oh, hold up. Smell test. Go ahead. Sniff those pits. Now, your bits. Feet, toes, come on. Could be fresher, right? It's all good. Old Spice Total Body Deodorant Spray is gentle enough to use all over your body, giving you 24-7 lasting freshness with daily use, from pits to toes and down below. So every smell test gets a... <sighs> Shop for Old Spice Total Body Deodorant. So for, for a long time, the internet me, well, at least when I've been on the internet long enough to have a persona, was a persona. Someone a, a little wittier, a, a little snarkier, and with humor a little darker than I was in person. I mean, I, I wasn't a catfish. Those characteristics of, of internet me were a part of the real me, too. But the in-person me had neither the platform uh, nor the comfort in my own skin to reveal those parts of myself. The distance between internet me and in-person me began to shrink as I received more in-person validations for my internet persona. Money, opportunities, and random niggas calling me king <laughs> and asking me to build... The more of it that came, the, the, the more I felt myself becoming, in person, the person I'd only been online. So yeah, the, the first time internet me was invited to speak, I was terrified. I mean, it was 2009 uh, for a panel in D.C. about dating, sex, and relationships. And I needed to take five shots of Henny just to get comfortable enough to get on stage. And I fucking hate Hennessy. Hennessy tastes like old jock straps and new pennies. It tastes like bad credit. And 10 years later, when I was on my book tour, I still get nervous before getting in front of audiences and I still drink a little sometimes to settle down. But I was much more sure about myself because I had like a decade's worth of validations for my work and my writing. I also drank better bourbon. It... It reminds me a bit of the fallacy about how money changes people, when the truth is that money just allows someone to be who they've always wanted to be. But sometimes I, I sometimes I still feel like I'm stuck in the matrix. Like, it, it, is that internet me? The persona I conjure and allow myself to grow into? The real me? Or is it an exaggeration to overcorrect years of unactualized personality? And if I wrote myself into existence, 
What happens if someone or, or something hits delete? So this is Stuck with Damon Young, the show where we don't catfish, we eat catfish. On today's episode, we, we talk about the performance of internet behavior and whether our persona is online and in person, which I think we assume are distinct, are actually collapsing into each other. I'm Jamel Hill, and a testament to my lameness is that I have never not had a professional screen name. Um, my screen name has always been Jamel Hill. It's never been like Detroit's finest. I was never a hot girl doing it big. Even on Facebook, you know, you have like Reggie getting money, Jackson. Like that ain't never been me. I have always been just Jamel Hill. So that's Jamel Hill. She's a contributing writer for The Atlantic and, and host of the podcast, Jamel Hill is Unbothered. And I want to talk to her because she's very popular on Twitter and, and very often gets criticized there too. And I guess I'm just curious how personal that feels for her. I'm wondering if you've ever felt a distinction between your, your digital persona and your in-person persona? And if so, I guess, um, when did you first realize that? And have you tried to rectify it if it's if it's a thing? Well, um, you know, I, I think early on, like I first joined Twitter in 2009. That was when Twitter was like really fun mm -hmm. <laughs> and also real ratchet, like much different than it is now, you know, uh, where it's a, a certain level of seriousness. But then it was like, you know, super fun. Like, it was just dumb topics all the time. And people were just, you know, it just mm -hmm. seemed it was really light. And a lot of that changed, I think, after, at least for me, in terms of the digital persona becoming, uh, there being the expectations being different when, you know, I got into the thing with Donald Trump, because that is where my, however people knew me was mostly through you know, ESPN and sports. So the conversation was usually about sports and sports things. And then suddenly, even though from time to time, I would comment on things outside of sports for sure. But that all shifted because there was a brand new set of eyeballs that was watching me. And I became more aware of that because things that I considered to be kind of benign started to become news stories mm -hmm. as people started to write about and think pieces and I was just like, oh, so every word they're watching, got it, <laughs> right? And what happened is um, people started to really look at me as just being this super serious, angry person all the time, which is not who I am in real life at all. I mean, there are things that definitely outrage me, things I'm passionate about, but it felt like people were, ex there was this expectation that I was, you know, kind of upset all the time. And that just wasn't the case. I mean, I get in and I get out. I'll engage, but I just want to make sure that people see more of a balance in, in who I am. Is that, yes, there are things I think very seriously about and take very seriously, but I also like to shame people who put sugar on their grits. People take 
how you are digitally. And it's like they amplify it by a thousand and think that that's who you are like all the time. And I'm much more nuanced and well-rounded than the person that they see on social media. And it's just like, oh, okay, I'm going to say my quick two, three little Twitter comments and then I'm going to go back to watching, you know, um, Below Deck. Like, it's, it's okay. Like, I can do that. Right. And so I think that allows me to always keep a certain amount of distance between digitally what's happening and, you know, my real life. You know, it's taken everything in me not to respond to your to your grits um, comments. So I'll just I'll just table that and we'll come back. Are to you that. a sugar grits person? I'm You're a, a I'm a grits eat person. the grits however the fuck you want to person. Like I'm I'm a if you want to we got to stand if for you want to eat like, if, we 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 can't have this if you want to <laughs> eat them with sugar with salt with watermelon with with <laughs> with with whale lard like whatever you want to eat your grits with eat your grits with them. You know, I, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm I'm not there yet. You're much more progressive. I mean, it's, it's not it's not about being progressive. It's about just, you know, responding to my palate. And if my palate is in the mood for for sugar and grits, I am not going to be like, well, <laughs> you know, you're not I'm not supposed to eat this. this. <laughs> I have to check in. <laughs> Let me check in. See, again, we're we're, we're gotten off All track right, we are. In, a, in a grits discourse. <laughs> I'm curious because, you know, you're a public critic, uh, but you also get criticized pretty publicly, too. And, you know, much of that comes from the left or comes from the right uh, where conservatives, white people, whatever, trying to troll. But some of it comes from us. And, you know, that that coming from us reached a fever pitch uh, when you amplified a piece that I wrote about five years ago. Straight black men are the white people of uh, uh, black people. And I, I guess I'm curious how you feel about the criticism you get from us. Yeah, I mean, I, it, it, but between all those criticism buckets that I, I tend to ignite, mm. uh, I do think about the ones that our people say about me much more seriously because they're my people. Mm -hmm. So, of course I do, right? So, it does bother me. So, starting with your, your article, and I had faced this criticism before at different points in my career, depending on what was said is uh, because I found there to be a lot of truth in what you wrote in your commentary, um, people reacted mostly to the headline. A lot of people didn't even read what you had to say, but this is, I mean, this is what we do. So that's not a surprise. So from that, I then get accused of hating Black men. And I'm called uh, all manner of bed wenches, biscuit eaters, Aunt Jemima's, all this, Right. Which only proved your point of what you were saying, which they seemed to miss. Like, mm, you, you really just proved this point. And the reason I could relate to what you wrote is because being in sports, there are times where there have been Black athletes who have done things that I find to be reprehensible. And when I say something about it, that same criticism is levied at me. And it doesn't matter if 99.9% .9 of the things that I say about Black male athletes is completely positive, right perspective, very nuanced, thoughtful, whatever. Does not matter. I say the one wrong thing, the one time about the one guy that everybody loves, and then suddenly it's like, oh, okay, you just doing the master's bidding. And it's just, it's disappointing for me and especially since some people have drugged my family into it as well, mm -hmm. because I've been very open about the fact that my father is a recovering addict and um, that, yes, at one time we did have 
a very estranged relationship. That is not the case anymore and has not been the case for some time. But people want to use that as being the reason why I have it in for Black men, Black men, despite the fact that I more often than not express my love and appreciation for them. Hell, I married one. <laughs> I mean, so, I mean, and, and, and I don't really, I don't want to sound like, oh, I got a Black friend, so that means X. But, mm-hmm. you know, this supposed track record of me hating Black men is just not accurate and it's not there. And it's hurtful for me as a Black woman who, like a lot of Black women have done, we feel like whenever Black men go through something, whenever they are being persecuted, whenever they are being disrespected, um, we are on the front lines all the time. (laughs) And the whole point of what you wrote and what a lot of us feel is that when there are inter-community issues that we need to discuss, and because we are mostly around our people and, you know, um, yes, there are Black men that have hurt us. And whenever we want to talk about that, then it becomes an entirely different story where we're told to swallow our pain, swallow our trauma, shut the fuck up, stop being, stop trying to ruin the Black men. We're, we're told all of that. And so if it seems as if when, you know, Black women um, need that support and protection that I go overboard to give it to them, it's because I know, based off what I've experienced, what they will face once they begin to speak to some of the issues happening inside of our community. Yes, we do have misogyny issues. We do have abuse issues. We have all that. And none of that is saying that only Black men are the ones with these issues. It's societal issues. But in our community, it's a bit more tricky and nuanced because we have the heavy shadow of racism over all of us. Long-winded way of saying is that, yes, it does bother me um, because I know what, I know how I feel about Black people. I know how I feel about Black men. And for somebody who doesn't know me and doesn't know shit about me to come in from another direction and try to accuse me of or question what that love is, you damn right will be pissed off about it. Yeah, and I I, I see you know sometimes and and I see this with you I see this with other um black black women who are who are friends and peers where the sort of criticism that y'all receive just has a different bite to it like even if you you know you tweet a joke that 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 is corny <laughs> right? yeah which and, i do and, <laughs> which which everyone which we all do I'm I'm corny yeah. as fuck I'm 42 right. years old I'm I'm a dad Dad, I laugh right. at dad jokes. And I tell dad, dad jokes. jokes. I'm corny. I'm <laughs> yeah. corny as hell. Um, and we all do that. But I. But it, but you see that when black women kind of just step outside the line, either way, like oh, that was little. That joke was a little late, or that comment was a little off. Then this sort of this sort of pushback and sort of criticism just doesn't like match. It's like it's like someone who kind of hits you with a feather. And then you respond to them with an uppercut. It's like, yo, what, what, where the fuck? There's, there's no scale here. You know, I, I wonder if, you know, when that happens, if you ever feel, I, I guess, kind of outside of yourself, like, who is this person that they are responding to? So at the end of the day, I just, I, 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 I'm glad that I have been a journalist for over 20 years because on a smaller level, you saw examples of that all the time. I mean, I've been getting yelled at and cussed out and called racial slurs about stories for 20 years, all right? 
And it's the same thing is that to them, you are not a real person who's written a story and said something that they just don't like. You are just this journalist I can't stand or this public figure I can't stand. And that's all you are to them. And so uh, I try not to take most of it personally, but every now and again, when it's such an avalanche, <clears throat> you just, you know, because uh, if I respond to one thing, realize 500 other people have said the same thing. And so I'm just like, OK, now y'all on my nerves. And uh, it, it puts you in a in an interesting spot because you know that when people discuss you, when they criticize you, your humanity basically isn't even part of the equation. And I think the Internet, because there's so much performing, there's so much like, OK, I'm going to present this very best version of myself, the the, the self that I want people to see. Okay, if I want to be known as like this petty motherfucker, then that's who I'm going to be on the internet. That's that's the persona that I want to portray. If I want to be seen as like super woke or 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 one of the LLC Twitter niggas who, you know, rise and grind, whatever, then I'm going to portray that on on the internet. But then you step back and you just question, okay, how authentic is that? We are literally splitting ourselves, versions of ourselves between so many different things. And, you know, that's why each, I think, social media forum and platform has such a distinct personality. You know, you know that a lot of people on Facebook, for example, that's usually where most of their family, friends, you know, high school friends, college friends, that's where they all congregate. I'm the most me. I like it on the social media platforms that are mm -hmm. the most me. That is Facebook. I, I feel the really? freest. I feel the freest on Facebook. I could sprawl. I think on Twitter, I'm probably the most me because that's the one I probably frequently mm. use the most. So people are getting more of me. Um, and Instagram is probably a close second because Instagram has the variety that shows my personality. Yeah, I put up video clips from my podcast, but also things that people should think about, but also silly things about, you know, I just put up this one video about, um, how don't I mean it feels like everybody black was kind of raised the same way, but uh, about how you know if it's a, a a stack of cups, we just take we take from the middle, like we never take from the top. The right? top cup is evil. Yeah, the top you don't take the top cup. The top cup has cooties. The top has cooties. We all know this. So you go from middle like on down. Yeah, we know that, that is a fact. That's, right. I mean that's that's a fact. But we all like kind of built this way, just like with the yes. microwave. Like how many people? Because this was also part of the video, is that instead of hitting two and a half minutes on the microwave we just hit 35 times why do we do this I don't know why <laughs> on the subject of first AOL screen names I am a woman of a certain age so I was kind of obsessed with the Spice Girls and my first screen name was Ghetto Spice but I spelled it G-E-D-O-S-P-I-C-E. -E. My screen name used to be Top of the Line Dime, inspired by Mike Jones, the one, the only. My first email address was superstar at peoplepc.com. PeoplePC was the original rent-to-own computer. Yeah, I've redeemed myself since. My first ever screen name was... Moontanned one, because I guess I thought it would be cool if you got a tan by the moon. It was sixth grade. 
I was watching MTV and the world premiere of Booty Licious came on. I sprinted to the computer room. I thought, this song is going to change the world. I have to get this screen name. My hands were trembling as I typed it out, trying to be the first Bootylicious on AIM. I was not. I did get Bootylicious 88. It's AOL. You're, like, writing to all your friends and your crushes and stuff and, like, very, very proudly using Bootylicious 88. We've been talking about the, the distinctions between online and in-person personas. But but what happens when both you and your partner are very, very online? Are there, are there predetermined rules to follow? Do you perform partnership for your audience? For some answers, I, I reached out to one of my favorite very online couples, Janae Desmond-Harris and Joel Anderson. Janae is Slate's Dear Prudence Advice columnist. It was my editor when I wrote for the New York Times. And Joel, who also works for Slate, is a writer and reporter and a host of the Slow Burn podcast series. So when did you decide to go public with your relationship? Or was it like more, wasn't it, was there an intentionality behind that? Or was it more of like an organic sort of thing? Um, I guess if by public social media, media, particularly Twitter, we're, we're talking specifically, I, I guess, yeah. today about Twitter. When did you decide okay. to go Twitter public? I remember going Instagram public when I went to a BuzzFeed holiday party with you and we posted pictures. That was like a big moment for me. As far as Twitter, I think it was after we got engaged. That sounds Does right. That there sound were people right? that did not know that we were even together. Uh, and then they found out we were engaged. And I was like, oh, okay. You know, you just realize nobody's paying attention to you. You know what I mean? I thought, I was like, I thought y'all kind of saw you saw my Instagram. You know, we kind of interact a little bit. I moved to D.C. I live with her. Um, you all didn't know. But, yeah, it, that's I think I, re- I think you're right. that Our, our engagement really kind of tipped everybody off that we were together. So the IG, I guess, public thing happened before the Twitter thing. Was there a reason for that? Or, or again, was it just an organic thing? Because I know that there were there are also rules that govern um, Instagram um, revealings of relationships. They're like the soft, the soft open <laughs> where you, you, you share your you elbow like, yeah, or yeah, you, you show their shadow in a story some or something, is, yeah. or I'm on a date with some, or, you know, you just do all so this, happy, all this, rest, you know, all this slick shit. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> or it's like that picture of someone like, clearly someone you love took it of you yes. across the table and you're like, great dinner and great company. Yeah. Yes, it, it's like the the Liz Taylor White Diamonds treatment, basically. Yeah. And, you know, you get that. It's like, who the fuck is taking this picture? <laughs> you, with all these yeah. filters, and you've never looked better. Do you think that Twitter has maybe a similar dynamic? Or or is it just kind of like the Wild Wild West where you just do what the fuck you want? I feel like Twitter, um, I feel much more vulnerable sharing things on Twitter than I do on Instagram or Facebook mm-hmm. because um, I guess just because of like my privacy settings or the way I've selected my friends and followers, I assume most people on Instagram and Facebook like me <laughs> and want the best for me. 
And I don't feel that way about Twitter. Um, so deciding to be public there um, means you're exchanging like the dopamine hit that we're all addicted to when you share anything on Twitter for the fact that you know that some people who hate you are taking note um, or rolling their eyes or whatever. Right. You got to be strategically vulnerable on Twitter. There's no need in opening up your heart and bearing your soul because it can only be used against you later on Twitter. So, That's what so I think. Tell, tell me some more about the strategic vulnerability because I'm curious too because I am terrified of Twitter. Like I, I'm on Twitter, you know, mm-hmm. to 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 tweet my shit out and to read stuff, but I, I don't really engage. I never really have engaged there either because it, it uh. gives me more anxiety than it's worth. Um, to do that. Was there ever a time when you were on it like that? Even in- There have been stretches where like maybe I'll live tweet a show or I'll respond in a conversation or I'll start a conversation, but I've, I've never been active on Twitter. Like I've never, never, never have been. Um, That's interesting. I always thought that was a sign of your discipline, not being scared. Nah, it, it, it's a sign of my anxiety. <laughs> 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 about, <laughs> about getting, about, you know, and, and you know, to your point, Janae, um, you know, people who are on your IG page are should be your friends. But again, Joel, what does strategic vulnerability look like? Well, I mean, if I have like a larger point to make, I just think about all the times when I talk about um, healthcare. If I have some sort of issue with my mother, pretty like usually for me, it, it relates in some sort of way where uh, you know I have a larger point to make about how the healthcare system or the hospitals or you know, the way they treat Black women when they come in there or, you know, we don't not getting the service you need or even related to the pandemic today. Like I was just, I basically made reference to the fact that, you know, one of the reasons my mother's procedure took so long is as people continue to pass around this damn disease. And so I like me revealing that about my mother is like me being strategically vulnerable, even though I would never show her picture. I would never show her name on there. You know, that sort of thing. Um, it's for me in service of a broader point, but I would never just go on there and be like, man, Janae yelled at me, dog. And I'm hurt. I'm sitting down here on the couch. I'm sitting down here on the couch. You know I mean? Like, you know, it, I would never, <laughs> there's no benefit to that. You know what I mean? So I just have to be real about it. There's, like, like Janae said, you know, we have, you know, I guess this not insignificant a number of followers. And I don't presume that even a, decent plurality of them love me you know what i mean like or like me like there's a lot of people that probably follow me and screenshot my tweets or or hate me or whatever and so i don't i don't want to give people material to hurt me with later that you know that that actually is that i am vulnerable about i guess i think one of the most brave and like transparently vulnerable things people do on twitter which i've never done is to just go on there and say like i'm feeling horrible about myself can someone say something nice to me? Um, It's a little jarring to see that explicit request, but I actually think that's behind what we're doing. If we share a tweet thread about, you know, something difficult that's going on in service of a larger point, um, a lot of what you're getting back from that is people affirming you and comforting you. And I think that's what a lot of people want. And we all just go about it differently. What you're speaking of is kind of like a Trojan horse vulnerability. Um, and where you're you're able to kind of shield yourself from from the fuck shit by making it about this larger point, but you're still receiving the dopamine 
<laughs> and you're, you're still getting to retweets, you're still getting the likes, you're still getting to well wishes. Um, again, exactly. Yeah. Like I think in, I shared that I was going through IVF with like and had some miscarriages in a larger conversation about you know how we don't talk about this enough or whatever the point was. Um, Black women's healthcare, and I made the point which was fine. But what I got was a million DMs from women who were comforting me and opening up to me and offering support and eventually like sending me baby clothes. Um, and so I really, I got a lot out of that um, strategic vulnerability. Even if I wasn't explicitly thinking I'm doing this because I need some people to rally around me. I think on some level, I knew that would happen. Have you all encountered any, I guess, any any sort of indication that people have a parasocial relationship with you? And I, I, I really tried not to say that mm-hmm. word because I felt like 2021 ran out right into the ground, but that's the only <laughs> word that fits <laughs> here. So. Well, I, I know that we both have like those settings where you only see replies from, I think, people who follow you. Follow you, right. Or maybe even people you follow back. So that's my way of protecting myself from right. stuff that I just don't want to hear that won't make me feel good. Because to me, Twi- Twitter is for fun. Um, I'm on there to have a good time, to get that dopamine hit. To It's a shortcut as someone who identifies as a writer. It's easier than pitching a piece, submitting it, publishing it, having it edited. You throw out two lines and you get feedback and it feels right. great. Um, You're also crowdsourcing answers for prudence, I- I've seen. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's for fun and it's also very helpful for work. Mm-hmm. Um, so because <laughs> of that, I really try to protect myself from anything that's going to upset me because like, I'm on here voluntarily to have a good time. So I don't actually want to hear from people who I don't like or who are you know being intentionally annoying or critical. Right. And in fact, she encouraged me to do that because I think early in our relationship, I was a little bit more uh, combustible on Twitter. Is that maybe, you know, I was more willing mm-hmm. to to get in there and fight with people. And I think that's I spoiled probably more than a few evenings, you know, being fixated on trying to get the right tweet or being mad at somebody. <laughs> and so eventually she was like, you know what, why don't you set your filters up? And so eventually I did that. And I have to admit, like, it has been a much better experience Um because even like the the barrier for entry to respond to me now is you just got to follow me. But like a lot of people don't want to do that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so like, you know, uh, th- those are the only people that I guess I'm really interested in interacting with, not people, that, you know, doing a one-off or something like that. So I, I feel like for for you all as as a as a couple, your your coming out party had to do with someone. You know, she was a colleague of Janae's and. Apparently there was a, she had invited you to lunch and can you, you, you tell a story, please, if you don't mind. Um, sure. So I think she's a terrible person. Therefore, I didn't want to interact with her um, beyond what was required professionally. I also think she's a dishonest person. So I certainly didn't want to be one-on-one with her um, without like a mediator. So when she asked me to go to coffee, I politely declined because I had too much work. And she reported me to my boss and I got called into his office. But I wasn't allowed to tweet about this because New York Times social media policies. So Mm. I just had this like bizarre story that seemed to fly in the face of everything she would stand for. 
And that I couldn't tell because my workplace rules wouldn't allow it. And when, <laughs> you know, she did something else terrible one day and Joel took the opportunity to share my story with my permission. Well, I think the thing that was happening is there was a big staff meeting or something at the New York Times and she was airing out what was company business. Like she was basically live tweeting, you know, a staff meeting and talking about how she felt isolated or within the within the department because people were treating her a certain sort of way. And I'm like, you know why people are treating you like that. Like, nobody really knew who you were before you got to the New York Times. There was no reason for anybody to have any resentment to that person. And um, and so when every, you know, the way she got treated is the way she got treated. And then she's complaining about it on Twitter. And I'm like, you on some bullshit. I know exactly what you did to my wife. And uh, I, yeah, I worked the tweet up. I had to run it by her first because I didn't want to. <laughs> I didn't want to get her in trouble with her people. She still had to go to work. She, t- I want her to still be in good standing with the times. Uh, but when she gave me to go, you know, I was like, well, let me go ahead and shoot this out here real quick. There was so much chaos going on that day. I was like, it won't even make a difference. There's so much going on. Just right. go ahead. Right. I never thought anybody would pay attention to it or would care. I, we would say that. Yeah. <laughs> and actually, just this relates to Twitter too, and that part of the complaint that I was confronted with in my boss's office was she also says your husband called her racist on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> and I just I remember saying, I, I can't help you with that. <laughs> I, can't. I don't think he actually did use that word because we tried to be careful about that because people are so sensitive. But I just said, I can't help you with that. I'm not, I don't monitor his social media account. Although of course I do. Right, right. Yeah, I didn't think it would be such a big thing, but it was funny that people started calling Joel a wife guy and stuff. <laughs> and I was like, oh, he's he's always been great. This isn't like the best thing he's ever done for me. Yeah, the, the reaction was really funny. Do you feel like either of you have aged out of any conversations? Oh, I, probably a lot yeah, of my, them. Most what of did them. I say? <laughs> <laughs> like all all of the all of the dating que- all of the dating questions for instance cuz like I've never used a dating app. You know what I mean? Like I'm old enough that I've never been on a dating app. So any questions about $200 dates or somebody finessed you on Tinder or something like that, I was like I have no I, mean, I, I have a, the vague outlines. Your expertise as a, as a as a presumably happily married couple. Very very You happy. know, you might have some valuable insights there about about dating and I, I've never been on a dating app either, but you know, about, about Tinder. And I, I would imagine <laughs> that the dynamics aren't that different than offline dating, I guess, or whatever you call uh, the opposite. Uh, I, I, I think we have good insights. I don't know if that's just because of my job. Like I'm paid to feel confident in my insights about dating and relationships, but Joel is always like, no, we can't get cocky. We don't know anything. We've only been married four years. We haven't had any challenges. Um, we don't know. Don't get cocky. So I think I have plenty to offer. Joel thinks like we don't know anything. I just I just think that, you know, life is very long, you know, and uh, as much as I love Janae and want to spend the rest of my life with her and raise our children together. Um, and I, that's that is what I'm intending to do. That is my you know, like I don't want anything to get in the way of that. Like that is how I want to live the rest of my life with her. But she may get sick of me, man. You know, one day she may just look up. And be like, I don't like that nigga, man. You know, <laughs> and, 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 I, and I gotta deal with it. So that's all I'm saying. Or you know, just life life gets hard. So I just think that you know, being intentional and being in the moment is more important for me than you know. I think the internet has done a lot to make Joel 
like paranoid and self-conscious in a healthy way. <laughs> Remember all the articles a few years ago about emotional labor and mm. how you know women do all the emotional labor and men don't take responsibility for anything. Like he really absorbed those and like okay. became obsessed with them. Um, and he's also a very competitive person. So he will like try to do more around the house to not be a bad person, but also to beat me. <laughs> Like if I do something, he's like, "Oh shit, you're ahead." Now I, now I have to do something. So whatever works, um, we'll report back in like you know forty years and tell you if um, we have like a formula to offer. If that day were to come where you wake up one morning, she's like, "Yo, this nigga stinks." <laughs> hey, I, if, if, if she if she leave, if she leaves me, it won't be because I stink because I smell great. I shower twice a day. We're, we're but, a two shower a day household. Right, but so but yes, <laughs> if it gets to that point, how do you think you would handle that? Just in terms of your public, you know, I, I guess personas. That would be the absolute least of my concerns. Um, okay. I think I would be devastated no matter what. You know, like it, I don't think the internet. You know, of course, it would be embarrassing on the internet, but I would have to live with that heartache and hurt for the rest of my life. You know what I mean? So I just think that the the pain of it all would be so intense, so long lasting that I would probably not give much of a shit about Twitter. Now, I probably would disappear for a while off of social media, like if I, you know, because I, yeah, I probably wouldn't want to face the world. Um, but you know, that's all people make so talk so much about branding you know the fear of branding their relationships and don't put too much out there or whatever and i think it's just a fear of being embarrassed and being hurt um but i, I my, my my rejoinder to that is that you're going to hurt regardless like if you lose somebody that you love um in that way it's going to hurt you and i really don't think that people going on the internet and being told you uh, i oh yeah i guess y'all ain't going to brunch no more like i mean you know who that really, you know what i'm saying like, what would that actually mean in the context of, like, I've lost the love of my life? I don't think it would register that much. That was such a good answer. I was going to say, I thought we might put out a short little statement with the note. <laughs> <laughs> so, the, the first thing I do when waking up in the morning, before yawning, sitting up, stretching, and even getting up to brush my teeth, is reaching over the side of my bed for my phone and checking to see what I missed in the five hours since I last looked at it. And and, and not just texts or, or phone calls, but emails, tweets, Facebook posts, likes on recent IG posts, and updates to Reddit threads about Kyrie Irving. And then I'll do whatever shit humans need to do to prepare for the day. But then most of the rest of my time awake will be spent online. I guess, I guess my point is that it, it might be silly now to have any anxiety about the distinctions between a virtual me and the physical real world me, because the distinctions between a virtual me and a physical me are so minute, so inconsequential that they barely exist. And even if I tried to have distinct personas, the time I spend online and my reliance on the internet to make the money that allows me to live in the physical world would make that impossible. Internet B has to be the real me because it's a choice I made and also because there's no other choice. (laughs) 
Stuck with Damon Young is a Spotify original podcast from Gimlet and Crooked Media. It's hosted and written by me, Damon Young. Ruben Davis is our executive producer. Our producers are Ashley Velez, Morgan Moody, Carlton Gillespie, Priscilla Alabi, Stephen Hoffman, and Corinne Gilliard. Mixing and sound design by Jesse Nas, Charlotte Landis, and Veronica Simonetti. Theme music and score by Open Mike Eagle. From Crooked Media, our executive producers are Tanya Sominator, Sarah Geismer, and Katie Long. From Gimlet, our executive producers are Rosie Guerin, Crystal Hall Stressler, Colin Campbell, and Lydia Polgreen. 